Well, I want to uh, say happy Father's Day to everybody this morning. Now, my father's father, my grandfather, was born May 22nd, 1916. And so this is the same year that Coca-Cola released its current brand or formula to the market. Um, World War I was in full swing, and also uh, Kellogg's all-brand cereal was released to the world and just uh, made life much better for some people. Now, uh, some people are doing quick math going like, how old was your grandfather when he had your father or your father when he had you? And we'll just say, uh, my father was a very late surprise. But I, I loved listening to my grandfather talk about all the changes he saw Um, throughout his life. Again, he lived from 1916 to 2010. And so in those 94 years, the world changed a lot. Um, In his lifetime, women got to vote for the first time. The Great Depression occurred. The first television broadcast happened. World War II came and went. Computers were invented. The first man went into space. The first man walked on the moon. You had the civil rights movement. And I forgot this one in the first service. I don't know how, but like the internet was invented, which kind of changed everything. But but just to hear my grandfather describe how life changed um, in those 94 years was kind of amazing. Uh, and, and he got to experience a lot of things for the first time simply because of um, where he grew up um, in PEI, but also when he grew up, those, those 94 years. And, and so I, I always like to ask him, what was it like? Because this is a guy who, who went from having no electricity in the home to having electricity, having uh, a home phone to cell phones to smartphones, even like cameras. The idea that they could have a camera of their own and then take pictures, then they'd be come out on film, then they went to digital, then you have good cameras in your phone. Um, television, going from just having this marvelous thing, the television, in black and white, to having it in color, to having it in thin screen or flat screens. Um, transportation changed massively. Now, I think the one that would just kind of like revolutionize the way you live was going from having to use an outhouse to having indoor plumbing because like think how great that would be first time you're experiencing this or something like that in the dead of a PEI winter like that would just be amazing now when I thought about my life and I'm comparing my list of firsts to my grandfather's list of firsts mine just don't feel like they really stack up that well right now like I'm going like I'll tell my grandchildren well I remember the first social network or I remember the first African-American president of the United States, which is a pretty cool one. Um, or baby, like, I remember the first meme. And some of you are going, what's a meme? Um, that's a generational thing. Now, the church itself has experienced a lot of firsts throughout its own history. And as we're studying through the book of Acts, we're seeing a lot of these firsts. Some of these firsts are good, and some of them aren't so good. Now today we're going to get to the point, we're going to hear about the church's first um, martyr, the first person to die for the cause of Christ. A martyr is someone who witnesses to the point of death. And we're not left to go, what was that first martyr's death like? Um, Luke tells us, the author of Acts, 
And so we were introduced to a man named Stephen last week in Acts chapter 6. And um, Greg, he was explaining that Stephen is this man who was full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. And he was um, chosen and introduced as this man who's going to help oversee the daily distribution of foods um, to the uh, widows as part of the church's benevolence ministry. But Stephen's ministry is not limited solely to waiting on tables. His, his capacity, his capabilities um, grow. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 8. And uh, it reads as follows. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Now, chances are Stephen is actually a member of one of these synagogues in which he's going to speak a member in one before he was converted to Christianity. Now, Stephen becomes a Christian. He understands that his job as a disciple of Jesus is to go and make more disciples of Jesus. And so he looks at these people in the synagogues and go, those are some potential converts. And so he goes to them out of love. He opens up the word of God and he says, this is who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. But in doing this, um, he meets some, some hostility. It says some of the men from the synagogue of the freed slaves begin to debate with him. These freed slaves, your, your Bible might say, freed men are Jewish people who had been enslaved or imprisoned but have since um, been released. And so when, when it says they begin to debate with him, don't think like heated yelling match where it's, it's really tense. At this point, it's probably more like discussion. Um, they debate and discuss the need for conversion as they examine and, and question together from God's word whether Jesus was the long-awaited and predicted Messiah. And so Stephen is saying, you know what, guys? There, there's a new covenant that's replacing the old covenant. He's saying the temple and its practices, they're actually passing away. And he's saying Jesus um, has fulfilled the law. And in doing this, Stephen is just making people very, very angry. Um, he meets that hostile opposition. Now we have to understand Christianity has almost always been at odds with other faiths or religions um, because it claims exclusivity to the way and the truth of salvation. And this isn't something um, Christians have done on their own. This is something Jesus puts in place. In John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And so Christianity it doesn't complement other faiths. It doesn't um, rest easily side by side, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It, it demands um, a total allegiance. And Jesus makes this clear. Now, verse 10 says, these men can't stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. And so what I want us to understand from, from this is that Christianity is not relegated solely to the realm of feeling and emotion, or we just say it was this great experience, but there's knowledge, there's truth and reason behind our faith. You can examine it, you can study it, you can discuss it. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, these poor guys who are arguing with Stephen, they don't stand a chance of winning. One, um, they're wrong. And secondly, it's because Stephen knows the word of God 
And Stephen is under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so what do you do? Maybe you've been in this case. What do you do when you can't beat your opponent with logic or reason because truth isn't on your side, but you you don't want to yield to the truth and you're desperate to win? Well, you start a smear campaign. You try and beat them with lies and attacks on their character. And so in Acts chapter 6, this is what they begin to do. These men persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. So if you wanted to upset the Jewish nation, this is what you would do. You would talk poorly of Moses, the temple, their customs, or the law. And I mean, this, doing this is like worse than um, trash-talking the Star-Spangled Banner or um, Abraham Lincoln in front of uh, an American. It's worse than trash-talking Canadian or ho- hockey in front of a Canadian. You, you don't do it unless you want to encounter um, a fight, get into trouble. Now, Stephen's arrested. He's brought before the high council And they hear the testimony of the false witnesses and these charges brought against Stephen. And the high council is going, can you really believe this? That this this guy would speak poorly of Moses and the temple and the law? Is he really talking smack about these things? Now it's verse 15. It says, Stephen had a face like an angel. You might be going, well, what does that face look like? Just picture me. Um, (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, Luke is writing down what he's heard from eyewitnesses, people who were there. And the witnesses would take notice of Stephen's face because it looked like nothing like any other defendant um, in a trial where their lives hang on the line. And for Stephen, death is a real possibility. But Stephen doesn't seem to be phased by this. And what this probably means is that Stephen is exhibiting this calm assurance and composure, a piece that's extraordinary considering um, the, the accusations, the possible outcome of the trial. Now, he's been brought before the council in hopes that he's going to be charged with blasphemy. And the penalty for blasphemy is death. And they're going, if Stephen's put to death, we'll permanently silence this guy. That's their goal, silence Stephen. But they've actually served to give him a bigger platform because they've put him in front of the high council. He gets to preach Christ. And because of what happened, Stephen's words and Stephen's example are with us today for us to read. Now, maybe Stephen is so calm in this moment because he's experiencing what Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 11 verses, um, sorry, Luke chapter 12 verses 11 and 12. It says, and when you are brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. And so this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And so Stephen um, is about to begin his defense. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these accusations true? What do you have to say for yourself? And this was Stephen's reply. 
Now, if you want to make the Jewish people happy, what you do is you recount their history. They love to hear their history told and be reminded of it. But as Stephen does this, he sheds some different light on it, light that they wouldn't really appreciate. And so for the sake of time, we can't go through Stephen's entire thing, and we're just kind of going to do a Spark Notes version of it. But Stephen, he talks about Abraham and Joseph to show that God does not have to be worshipped in a temple. He does not have to be worshipped in Jerusalem, but that God had been active in Mesopotamia and Haran and Canaan and Egypt. And so God is not limited to the confines of the promised land. He talks about Moses and the law to show that those who do not keep the law are punished by God and that Israel has actually broken the law throughout its history talks about the tabernacle and the temple to show that it was, it was part of God's revelation to a people who were coming out of slavery and idolatry. And it served as this place to worship. But even those who were building it, even those who worshiped at it early on, they recognized that it was not the real place where God dwelt. They understood that the temple was not the final revelation of how men were going to worship God. Now in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, this is the end of Stephen's um, speech, and it takes this dramatic change in tone. Verse 51, Stephen says, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law even though you received it from the hands of angels. So Stephen's tone um, shifts, and he applies everything he has just said. And what he's saying is the equivalent of calling these, the high council, the people there, heretics or blasphemers. And Stephen's defense is not so much a defense of himself, but it's a defense of the gospel. And his big point is that Israel has resisted the Holy Spirit throughout its history, and they're doing it again. He reverses the roles and he puts the Sanhedrin on trial for murder, saying, you guys have murdered the chosen one. You've murdered God's Messiah. And you're not just accessories in this. You are the principal reason that the Messiah has died. And for some reason, I don't know why, but these guys just don't like that. They don't respond too well to it. And so in verse 54, we see their response. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Now Stephen's saying that he, he sees right into heaven. He sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. It angers the Jewish high council for a few reasons. One, Stephen is saying, I see spiritual things that you guys can't see. But he's also saying this. He's saying that Jesus is the Messiah. And this, this just 
angers them. This is the last straw. Now, most commentaries, they say, when Jesus is standing at the right hand of God the Father, what it represents is one, that Jesus is ready to sustain Stephen for what he knows is about to come. But he's also ready to welcome Stephen home for the stuff that comes after what is about to come. And so this this crowd, they can't stand to hear anymore. They rush Stephen, they drag him out of the city where he's stoned to death. Now when you read in scripture that somebody has been stoned to death, um, it's quite literal. It has nothing to do with drugs. Let's not try and proof text that one. It's literally throwing rocks at a person until they die. And with his death, Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr, the first person to pay the price for extreme devotion to Christ, a a witness until the point of death. And so even though under the law, stoning was the prescribed method of execution um, for people who had committed murder or blasphemy or apostasy, what's happening here is actually illegal mob action because the crowd is responding in anger. Um, There hasn't really been a verdict. They just grab Stephen, drag him out. Also, it was illegal for the Jewish people to carry out executions under Roman law. But when the crowd um, takes Stephen out and they they take off their coats to to begin throwing rocks at Stephen, they lay them at the feet of a young man named Saul. We might read that going, well, they're saying, hey, Saul, can you watch my jacket? I'm going to take it off so I have better range of motion for throwing rocks at this guy. Please make sure nobody swipes my coat, my, my passport, my phone are in there, so just watch over them, something like that. But, it, but it's actually more than that. When it says the person watching over the coats, th- this is the person who's saying, I'm going to take responsibility for what happens here if we're called to account to it. The coat watcher is taking personal responsibility for what the crowd does. And I mean, Saul is really willing to take that accountability, to to take the blame for it if it comes down to it. Because in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, it says this, A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Now Saul begins to persecute the church, and the church um, scatters. And we go, oh, that's not really good. But actually, God brings some good out of that persecution, because in verse it says, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. And so even though they're being persecuted, the places where they go, they preach Jesus and the church grows in many ways as a direct result of persecution. Now what is kind of amazing is the similarity between Stephen's trial and that of Jesus's trial. And we get a glimpse of Jesus's trial in Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 through 60. It says, inside the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward. 
And so the similarities are that um, their enemies excite the people and alarm their fears. They use false witnesses. Almost the same charges are brought against Stephen as were brought against Jesus. The same high council and high priest oversee it. There's illegal actions taken to make sure this happens. Both are put to death, wrongfully accused. And Stephen's prayer is very similar to some of the prayers that Jesus says on the cross. And this is not a coincidence. Um, Maybe Stephen was there to witness Jesus' crucifixion or Jesus' prayer on the cross were taught to him. But in doing this, in saying these prayers, Stephen is showing that he seeks to be like his Lord. Stephen understands that the life of a disciple is to parallel the life of their master. It's not that we seek to die on a cross, but that we seek to be righteous. We forgive our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. I mean, Jesus talked about how the world is going to view his disciples in John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. Now Jesus is saying here, the world's going to persecute and hate his disciples. I mean, he never really gives this idea that when people hear that you're his disciple, they're going to be like, oh, that's awesome and love you for it. It's kind of the opposite picture he gives. I mean, I I know that if if you're a Christian, that's not what you want to hear. Maybe you're checking this church stuff out and you're going, ugh, that doesn't really sound like something I want to get involved in, that people will hate me. But my goal in, in sharing scripture is always to try and be as honest with you as possible as I can be about it. I I show these texts to show you I'm not making this stuff up. Now, Stephen was the first martyr, but he certainly was not the last. A recent statistic said it's estimated that 90,000 Christians have been martyred in the last year. It's estimated that in the last 50 years, more Christians have been martyred than in the first 300 years of Christianity's existence. And my goal is to kind of help you understand the Christian, or sorry, persecution It's not something that's limited to the past. It's not something that happens over there in a country that is far away. If we had a scale of of Christianity's favor within our our culture, how people view it, and on this side, it's it's great favor. Um, It's it's loved and well-received by culture. And on this side of the scale, you have hatred towards it, great disfavor. I don't know exactly where we fall on the scale, but I can tell you we're moving in this direction. We're we're not moving in this direction. This is the direction we're moving in. And I mean, the change my grandfather saw kind of in culture's attitude towards uh, the church and Christianity in his 94 years was drastic. I'm, I'm 30 years old, and just the change I've seen in my 17 years of being a Christian just kind of mind-boggling in many ways. I mean, I I do admit, and we have to admit, that the the church, again, capital C, has done some things that have not helped it. But at the same time, 
It, it largely comes down because of the beliefs and principles of our faith. They contradict, they butt heads with those of our culture regarding life and how to live. Now, there are those who will say, well, if you would just stop believing this crazy thing, we'd be cool. If you would um, see how antiquated or old-fashioned that, that practice or whatever it is is and just let it go, we'd be fine. But we have to understand that our, um, our role as the created is not to change what God the creator says. I mean, if we were to do that, that would be worse than a child going to their parent and saying, hey, mom, um, you know this whole bedtime thing? Don't believe it anymore. We're not going to do it. Uh, hey, dad, you know how you're always telling me don't get into strangers' cars? That's so old-fashioned. What an antiquated practice. I mean, as a parent, uh, you wouldn't, at least I hope you're not going, well, I didn't realize that practice was so offensive to you. I didn't, I didn't realize that this was such an antiquated thing. Well, we're going to get rid of all these um, guidelines in our house. Like, I, I don't want to do any of that. As a parent, no, you're going to go, I don't really care what you think about those rules or those things because they're there for your good. They're there to protect you. And in the same way, God has put things in place for our good, for our protection, for our safety. And we have to recognize that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And you don't go messing with the things of God. Now, there may be some here who disagree with me in this, but if you follow and adhere to the teachings of Scripture, you will not be loved for it. There will be people who hate you for it, Jesus says. And I, I, my goal is not to fear-monger, but just to be honest. I've seen Christians and Christianity get ripped to shreds in the media and online for their beliefs, and much of what is done is not discussion, it's not debate, but it quickly moves towards stuff that is hateful. And we as the church have to be careful how we respond to this. We're, we're going to be held account to that. But regardless of what comes, Jesus calls his disciples to be an example for our fellow Christians, our children, for those who are not yet Christians at all times, good and bad. Christians are witnesses of Christ in the world. And being a witness may seem scary, feel uncertain, and it certainly can be. But here's the thing. Where the church is a faithful witness lives and nations are changed. I read a recent article, um, and it said that in 1979, the Iranian revolution established a hardline Islamic regime in the Iran. And over the next 20 years, Christians faced increasing persecution and opposition um, in their country. So all missionaries are kicked out of Iran. Evangelism becomes illegal. Bibles and Persians just... In Persian, they become um, rare, almost scarce to find. Several pastors were martyred. And so the church is under this time of persecution. And many looked at the situation and go, the, the church in Iran is going to cease to exist very soon. But as often is the case when God is involved, the opposite happened. Despite continued hostility from 1979 until now, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. And they give two reasons for this. The first one is that violence in the name of Islam has caused widespread disillusionment with the Muslim faith and led many um, Iranians to question that faith. And secondly, but probably more importantly, 
Many Iranian Christians have continued to boldly share Christ even in the face of persecution. And so as a result, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the first um, 13 centuries combined. In 1979, there was an estimated 500 Christians in Iran. Today, they estimate there are hundreds of thousands, if not more than one million. And last year, it was said that Iran has the fastest growing evangelical church in the world. And God is at work in Iran and countries like that. And for some reason, the more you try and crush the church, destroy it, the more it flourishes, the stronger, the bigger it gets. And I think it's because persecution forces the church to witness. Now, to what point will persecution get in our culture? You may be wondering that. What, what point will it get to in our lifetime? And I, I don't know. Um, we don't know. But we do know what point Christ calls us to be faithful to him. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, it says, These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. And when hardship and persecution come because of our faith, we are called to be witnesses. And I mean, some people tap out when it just gets a little bit uncomfortable and they, they will, they'll say that they're choosing their social life, their job, money, comfort over Christ, that there, there are some things that are too great a cost to pay in order to follow Christ. But many Christians have paid that ultimate price. I mean, Stephen was one of them. And we know Stephen had an impact. That witness had an impact on at least one person there that day. And in this text, Luke introduces us to the main character of the latter half of the book of Acts. His name is Saul. Saul eventually becomes a Christian. He changes his name to Paul. He goes on to be one of the greatest church planners the world's ever seen. And he authored half of the New Testament. And Saul still carried Stephen's witness with him years later. You can read it in Acts chapter 22, verse 20. But Stephen's witness impacted Paul. Now, what if Stephen had backed down? What if Stephen wasn't a faithful witness in the persecution and the point of becoming the church's first martyr? How might it have changed Paul's life? How might that have affected the early church? But Stephen was faithful. And that persecuted church, it preached Christ where it went. Saul became a a zealous disciple, and history says he was eventually beheaded as a martyr for Christ himself. And because of the faithful witness of Christians in, in those times, the church exists today. I'm not saying we should go out and, and seek persecution. I'm saying we should desire a martyr's death. But my question is, and what I'm trying to get at is, whatever we face, we are a witness of Christ. And so what does or will your witness say to those who are watching, to your children, to, you, to those unbelievers in your life? To what point are you willing to follow Christ? And as I said, we don't know what point uh, persecution might get into our culture or in our lifetime, but we do know to what point Christ calls us to be faithful, to the exact same point he was faithful to us, to the point where Christ died the criminal's death 
on the cross as the innocent sacrifice for our sin so it could be atoned for so that we could be reconciled back to God. And so if Stephen and the many martyrs um, were with us today and we, we asked them to just share something with us about what happened, what, what do you have to say? I think they would say this. Be faithful in whatever comes, even to the point of death. And the one standing at the right hand of the Father, the one who sustains you, the one who will welcome you home, will give you the crown of life. Jesus is worthy. Where the church is a faithful witness, lives and nations are changed.